The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Want to fearlessly explore your creative spirit? Join artist Susie K. Edwards for Path of the Butterfly, a weekend workshop at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24th through 26th. Experiment with a variety of art forms, engage in mindfulness, walking, and silent meditation, and discover a new and free-flowing creative vision. This workshop is for beginners and professional artists. Learn more at eomega.org thrive. From Spirituality and Health Magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami, and this is the Spirituality and Health Podcast. Thanks for joining us. Our guest today, Ken Mogi, is a neuroscientist, writer, and broadcaster based in Tokyo. He's published more than 30 papers on cognitive and neurosciences and over 100 books in Japan covering popular science, essays, criticism, self-help. His newest book in English is The Way of Nagomi, the Japanese philosophy of finding balance and peace in everything you do. Ken Mogi, welcome to Spirituality and Health Podcast. Hi, and it's such an honor to talk to you. Well, it's a pleasure to talk to you. I am. I've read both of your books in English, and I've watched some of your stuff on YouTube, and I am really excited to have an opportunity to talk to you because I'm so fascinated by Japanese culture. Yeah, and we're gonna we're gonna get into that. Your latest book, the book on Nagomi, introduces us to this concept of Nagomi, and it's a word with which I imagine few of our listeners are familiar. So let's just start out with a definition. How should we understand the word itself? Well, Nagomi is a balance, harmony between people and things. But the unique point about Nagomi is that you try to establish harmony even with your enemy, even with somebody you disagree with. And th- that, I think, is a fresh breath of air in this age of echo chambers and alternative facts and so on. Nagomi, I think, is the mother of all interesting Japanese concepts that came out of this country. For example, ikigai or, you know, uh, all these, if you know these words. I think Nagomi is at the heart of all these wonderful Japanese concepts. Well, you wrote a book on Ikigai called Awakening Your Ikigai. And, and Ikigai, if I understand it, means life purpose. Right. So how does, how does balance play into the notion of life purpose? In the West, interestingly, if you look at the self-help book market in the United States, for example, I fe- feel that there is a very strong emphasis on being successful and making a lot of money and so on. And when the Westerners think about Ikigai, purposeful your life, they tend to think in terms of these commercial, practical achievements. But in the sense of Ikigai, actually, it's a compromise of what you've got. You like to be Steve Jobs or Elon Musk, but you might not be that talented. And you might have familiar obligations. You might have to look for your elderly parents and you might have to, you know, look take a care, take after, look after your kids. And all these, you know, complicated elements in life cannot be dealt with so successfully in the typical self-help book that is rampant in the American market, so to speak. But when you have Ikigai, you can find pleasure in many things, small things like taking your dog for a walk or, you know, 
watching your child smile and so on. And these things might not necessarily lead to financial success or, you know, fame and influence and so on. But that is totally all right. So, you know, Ikigai is about finding a Nagomi with your own particular condition. So I, I think in that sense, Ikigai and Nagomi uh, harmony is very much related. So it, it's, it sounds like it's finding purpose in the situation in which you find yourself at the moment. That's right. As opposed to some larger, oh, I'm going to write the great American novel, or I'm going to you know, become a successful entrepreneur, I'm going to become famous. And it sounds like my life purpose really emerges out of the needs of the moment. Is that fair to say? I think you are spot on. And, you know, in Japan, there is this wonderful uh, tradition of Zen meditation from which came this wonderful concept of mindfulness and so on. So being in the here and now, which was actually one of the five pillars of Ikigai, is very much at the heart of how we may find purpose in our life by being in the here and now. Of course, in the world today, if you look at what's happening in cinemas and music and so on, people do find this concept of being in the here and now very interesting and very appropriate for modern life. But in Japan, for some reason or another, especially in the Zen meditation tradition in Buddhism, people have always felt that this being in the here and now ethos is very central to uh, what life is all about. So I don't know if you're familiar with this, I guess, mode of, of therapy in Japan called Morita. Oh, actually, of, of course, yes. Yeah, so, so I studied Morita therapy for quite a while, as, we, as well as its counterpart, Nikon. Okay. And, and Morita, as I understand it, comes out of Zen Buddhism, mm-hmm. whereas Nikon comes, comes out of Jodo Shinshu, the Pure Land Buddhism. But, yes. but let's, let's talk about Morita for a second. Now, I, I learned Morita in, in its English, in, in its American form. And the way it's taught, it's sort of the thumbnail way it's, it's taught is to know your, your ikigai, know your life purpose in, in this moment, to accept your feelings. So not to let your feelings get in the way. I don't feel like walking the dog. <laughs> my, okay. my life purpose in this moment is my dog needs me to take her for a walk, but I don't feel like doing it. Know my purpose, accept my feelings, don't fight my feelings, but don't let my feelings dictate my action. And then the third point of Marita, as it's taught here, is then do what you have to do to achieve your life purpose in that moment, which means walk the damn dog, (laughs) right? Even if you don't feel like it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the floor needs to be vacuumed. I don't want to vacuum the floor. But the purpose in this moment is to have a clean apartment or clean house. So I'm going to vacuum the floor. When your action aligns with your purpose, rather than your emotions, when your action aligns with your purpose, there is a sense, and though you don't do it for this reason, but there is a sense of, I don't know, would you call it harmony or a sense of satisfaction, though that's not the same thing. There, there's a sense of fulfillment that arises when you're, when you're achieving your, your purpose in the moment. That that Marita assigns that Marita will say that's a sign of mental health. Yeah, I think that's a fascinating insight into what wellness is all about. And I have many friends who have been successful athletes and 
artists and so on. And these people have a natural sense of mindfulness and, you know, being in the flow and in the zone and so on. So for these people, uh, there's not such a big problem about finding an Ikigai or finding Nagomi. But, you know, Dr. Morita, he's actually from the University of Tokyo. That's my alma mater too. And he studied, you know, people with well, disturbed mind conditions. And when you are off the balance and, you know, when you are stressful and so on, then it is difficult sometimes to find a way to achieve mindfulness and, you know, being in that zone. And Dr. Morita helped these people by outlining some way to rebalance your mind, if you like. And what you have said about uh, aligning your emotion with the purpose of at the moment and so on. I think these are really wonderful things. And I think, as I understand it, the most important aspect of the Morita method is that you don't try to deny a particular emotion of yours. I mean, even if that is negative. So I don't know about in the US, but in Japan too, sometimes people say that negative emotions are bad. If you, for example, find jealousy against somebody, then you try to deny that emotion. But the way to Nagomi, I think, in my opinion, also something in resonance with the Morita method is that you don't deny your negative emotion when, even when it is there. Because, you know, your brain has created this emotion for some reason. And that reason comes from your particular line of your life and your particular trait and, you know, something you cannot help, really. So in my capacity as a neuroscientist here, I meet with many people who complain about being stressful and, you know, having a lot of trouble. And most of the time, their unique problem appears to be that they cannot accept their own emotions, even when it is negative. So I think that is very central to what we call, you know, as spiritual, spiritual road to wellness in today's world. And no matter which part of the world and which background you might come from. So being clear that we're not talking about acting on your emotions, but accepting uh-huh. them. Yeah, that's right. It's, so, so being, you know, making sure that, that the listener understands, we're not saying if you're angry, you're going to act out on your anger, but you're not denying that you're angry, that you're angry. You're accepting the emotion because like you said, your brain is producing it. So, so it's there. There's no point in denying it. How, how impactful do you think acceptance is of, of your emotional life? Uh, to to the the way of Nagomi, and and let me just add one piece to it, and then you can answer maybe more to my question. It seems to me mm. that rejecting my emotions, saying I shouldn't feel negative, I shouldn't mm. feel anger, I shouldn't feel lust, I shouldn't feel whatever the emotion is that I think is inappropriate. By saying shouldn't, I add a layer of stress that is completely irrelevant because I'm already feeling what I'm feeling. So mm. saying I shouldn't feel it is is a waste of energy. But if I can simply say, ah, okay, I feel it, I'm accepting it, does that serve the purpose of Nagomi? Does that add to my sense of life balance if I don't fight against my emotions, even as if I even as I don't act on them? I think you're completely right. In the human brain, if you do have some emotion that comes from circuits involving for example, amygdala, that doesn't go away even if you try to suppress it. So a better strategy is to kind of reinterpret and reconfigure your emotion. 
So as you say, even when you are angry, it's not a good idea to act upon it, you know, to resort to act of violence and that kind of thing. That would be terrible. But if you do have anger, you can watch your anger. I mean, it's a part of mindfulness, really. You can be mindful about your own anger. And when you do that, the brain circuits in the prefrontal cortex would try to reconfigure your anger and try to give an appropriate context. For example, you might apply gaman. That is one of the issues that I discussed in the way of now. Gaman is a particular Japanese word for self-restraint and so on. It's central to Zen Buddhism. And, you know, you can apply self-restraint to your anger, and that would make you a better person. And you can actually draw a lot of pressure from it. And so maybe you've heard about this wonderful novelist, Kazuo Ishiguro, who is active in the United Kingdom and who won the Nobel Prize for Literature for mm-hmm. works like The Remains, Remains of the Day. And, you know, one, many of the things that he depicts in his novel actually very Japanese, even though it is based in the UK. So, for example, this butler who hides, well, who has, who tries to find a Nagomi between his a secret love for his co-worker, really wonderful lady, but for, for whom he cannot really express his romantic love because of professional obligations. I think is a very wonderful example of what Nagomi can achieve even if you have certain emotions, very strong emotions, actually, whether it's anger or romantic love and so on. So you can actually reconfigure and put in an appropriate context all these emotions that might enrich your life. So, okay, you can have a really colorful spectrum of emotions, if you like, but you can also put them in a really wonderful, clever, humane context if you really try to apply mindfulness to your emotion. Yeah, I think it's important, and and I'm sure people are are hearing this from you, that we're encouraging you to have the, not you personally, Ken, but the listener, to have and to experience the full range of human emotion, but not to give into the emotion and translate the emotion into action when the action is inappropriate to your life purpose in that that instant. When, When you're Practicing mindfulness, and unless we don't have to look at it in a formal meditative context, when when you're just observing even your emotion, whether it's a positive feeling or a negative feeling, whatever it is, as a neuroscientist, who is doing the observing? You know, like you're, I'm, you know, just talk about myself for a second. So, so I'm experiencing anxiety, just to pick an emotion. So I'm experiencing anxiety. And then I become aware that I'm experiencing anxiety. But the witness consciousness that is aware of the anxiety is not anxious. So how do you understand this this witness, this observer mind that is aware of my feelings, but isn't actually feeling the feeling. It's just observing them. That is actually one of the most important issues in consciousness studies or the mind-brain problem. And to be honest, there is no definite theory about how that higher self comes about from the neural activities in the brain. And 
you know, but that's a really interesting aspect of the human brain that there is a certain bookkeeping mechanism, if you like, which try to sort out things that occur within you, the emotionally and so on, and try to build a coherent picture of the world. So there is always a person who tries to make sense of what all that is happening to you. And that might be actually different from the person that is feeling a particular emotion or a person that is wanting to do something or a person that actually does an action. So, you know, in the brain, actually, there are many different aspects of self. And at the very top of all, I think there is this higher self or super ego, if you like, which really is a CEO of what you're doing. So, you know, if you, a brain is a company and you are an organization, there are many different levels of which you can operate. And at the highest level, there's this one hypothetical self of which keeps track of everything and which executes what your purpose is and so on. So, in, you know, as you know, it's, it's quite interesting. Of course, I, I know you have, have had a really wonderful career about, in religion, but in, in my career as neuroscientist, I learned that the human brain can be tapped into other really different levels. And, you know, if you try to make sense of what you're experiencing and try to, you know, make a better judgment every time you face a difficulty, maybe you can nurture this you know, wonderful aspect of the human brain condition, which would try to establish balance between many different conflicting elements, and which I find really fascinating. And I hope people out there would be able to, you know, tap into this hidden function of the brain more. But as I said, this is the most difficult problem in the science of consciousness. So, you know, what I have said, it's just a hypothesis and nobody knows the ultimate answer yet. Want to fearlessly explore your creative spirit? Join artist Susie K. Edwards for Path of the Butterfly, a weekend workshop at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24th through 26. Experiment with a variety of art forms, engage in mindfulness, walking, and silent meditation, and discover a new and free-flowing creative vision. This workshop is for beginners and professional artists. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. Right. I and mean, that's that's sort of the hard question in neuroscience or in consciousness studies. Do, do and I won't, I'm going to ask you one more question about it and I'm going to let it go. But do you consider yourself a materialist? You know, it's it's all the brain or are you more, there's something called, you know, Buddha mind or, you know, the some some level of consciousness that is beyond the brain? Well, Rabbi Rami, uh, that, uh, well, I, I, I need to be really honest for this moment because otherwise I cannot do justice to this wonderful podcast. You know, as you know, many scientists are atheists, right? I mean, they don't believe in God and they try to explain things away in terms of scientific methods. People like Richard Dawkins and Ricky Javes and all these people. I admire these people, but at the same time, I rather feel that that particular, you know, attitude would be intellectually rather trivial. You know, I'm a physicist originally. I got my PhD in physics and I understand what theory of relativity is all about and quantum mechanics and so on. So science has made a wonderful progress, but 
at the end of the day, this enigma of time, for example, the fact that when we started recording this podcast 20 minutes ago, there was then, but it is now, and this now would soon become the past. And this enigma of time cannot be really explained by any wonderful theoretical physics. And it is a danger in science that you believe you know everything. I don't believe I know everything. And so there's always this hole, if you like, of in a worldview. And you might call it a sense of wonder or God or spirituality or whatever. But I, I, I am convinced that there is something missing <laughs> in today's scientific understanding of the world. So for me, what the so-called atheists are doing in terms of communicating to people the wonders of science, they are fine. I mean, they are doing a good service to humanity as a whole. But on the other hand, I don't believe as a scientific way of understanding the universe is the ultimate answer. But on the other hand, I do not want to jump into any particular mystic theory of the world. So probably I remain agnostic in that respect. Good answer. <laughs> I mean, that, that was intelligent, honest, and, and very well put. So I, I appreciate your wrestling with that question. I want to go back to something much simpler for you, I think. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, and back from the theoretical, you know, I brought up a couple of things about Japanese culture that I, I was eager to get your, your insight into. And there's one more before we go back to Nagomi and the five pillars of Nagomi. And that is this concept that I think is not only brilliant, but so necessary for the for universal culture. And that is, and I don't know if I'm saying it right, but wabi-sabi. And and as I understand it, sort of the the beauty of of imperfection. Hmm. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So wabi for the beginners is imperfection and something lacking. In the Japanese culture, there's this tendency to leave some space for completion. You don't actually complete a thing. So, for example, this tradition of training in the mountains for 1,000 days in the Buddhist monks, you know, there's this training of 1,000 days in the mountains in which you run through the night for 40, 50 kilometers. I think that's something like 30 miles or so. And, but, you know, so sub theoretically, it is supposed to be done for a thousand days, but it, it is customary to stop after you have completed 980 or so, because you want to leave a room for wavi imperfection. And you are supposed to train, keep the training going for the rest of your life by leaving this space open. So that is wavi. Savi is also very interesting. It is appreciating the beauty coming from the wear and tear because of time pass passing. So in Japan, if you go to a Buddhist temple, it is customary to see worn out columns with the original painting going away. And, you know, but people find that really beautiful. So, you know, if you look at Japanese tea ceremonies, people do appreciate bowls made from the earth and having passed through many people's hands over the years, some, some of them more than 500, 600 years old. And th these uh, wares, bowls, tea bowls, they show signs of wear and tear, 
but they don't fix it. They let it be. And that is the beauty of Sabi. So Wabi is imperfection, and Sabi is wear and tear from the lapse of time. And these things actually are central to the aesthetics of Japanese culture, which I think is very different from, for example, the Chinese culture, where, you know, of course, of course Japan has been influenced by China very strongly. And we have, have, we have had many wonderful cultural uh, items imported from China. But in China, I understand when something is broken, uh, they throw it away. Because Chinese people think perfect things are beautiful, right? And when something is goes through wear and tear, they throw it away because it's not perfect anymore. But in Japan, you know, we keep them <laughs> as they are. So I think that's a very unique tradition in this country. Yeah, I think it's fascinating. I When I was studying Zen, I had a Zen master, Joshi Suzaki Roshi, but I also had a Zen teacher, Tetsu Uno, and his wife was a tea master, a tea mistress. Mm-hmm. And she would invite us to tea ceremony. <clears throat> and, you know, she would make the tea and whip, whip the green tea. And then we'd get, she'd hand you the bowl of tea. And then you were supposed to turn the bowl in your hand until you found the most exquisite part of the bowl, the, you know, the lip of the bowl, the rim of the bowl from which to drink the tea. And you were looking for the, the, the beauty of the imperfection, that, that part that was the most imperfect for you, I guess. I don't know how to say it exactly. And it, it was just such a powerful experience to see the beauty in the imperfection. And I, I've come to value that in, in many things, to see the, the, the beauty in the, in the wear and tear of things. Because in America, too, we tend to throw things away. Fast mm. fashion, we want you know, the, the new everything. But there is this, not only beauty, there's sort of a wisdom to the old things. And I mean, even old people, (laughs) we tend to throw those away also. Exactly. You know, so in the world today, there's too much emphasis on youth, I think. And, but when we get old, you, for example, get gray hair. I have gray hair. My hair used to be black. But that is okay because it's sabi, right? I mean, so, but I, I should say that even the modern Japanese people have sometimes forgotten this traditional aesthetics. And, you know, I think wabi-sabi are, are really wonderful wisdom of life and in which you can find nagomi with their own condition. So when you get older, of course, you become you know, <laughs> gray and you become wrinkled and so on. But that, that is also beautiful too. That is what yeah. we So, Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and we tend to discount it when we ought to really value it. Okay. So you've indulged me and I, and I appreciate it. Let's go back to Nagomi. And you begin and end the book with the five pillars of Nagomi. And I think this would be a good way to, to bring our conversation to a close. If you can walk us through the five pillars, that'll give people a good grounding in Nagomi and sure. encourage them to go and, and read the book. So, well, the five pillars of Nagomi is one, maintaining happy relationships with your loved ones, even if, if you disagree with them. And two, learning new things while always staying true to yourself. And three, finding a sense of peace in whatever you're doing. And four, mixing and blending unlikely components to strike a harmonious balance. And five, having a greater understanding of the Japanese philosophy of life. And all these things sums up what I have argued in the book. And 
I hope the reader would be able to find these points useful in their life. Yeah, the book, the book explains them beautifully. And I can't imagine anyone who makes the effort to read the book not, you know, they, they have to be enriched by, by the brilliance of, of these five points and the way you've articulated them. So I, I don't usually put in a plug for other books, but I did mention the Morita material. And I mentioned very quickly Nikon, though we didn't go into it. So just so people know, if you're interested in following up on that, my teacher in both of them was a fellow named David Reynolds, R-E-Y-N-O-L-D-S. And his work is called Constructive Living. He blends Morita therapy with Nikon therapy. Nikon is not spelled the same as the camera. It's N-A-I-K-A-N, inward looking. And he puts them together and he comes up with what he calls constructive living. So you can check that out also. Our guest today, Ken Mogi, is the author of The Way of Nagomi, the Japanese philosophy of finding balance and peace in everything you do. Ken, thanks so much for being with us on the Spirituality and Health podcast. It has been such a pleasure. Thank you very much. Spirituality and Health Podcast is produced by Ezra Baker Trupiano, and our executive producer is Brenna Lilly. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five-star reading on your podcast app. And if you're not already a subscriber to Spirituality and Health Magazine, please become one at spiritualityhealth.com. From everyone at Spirituality and Health Magazine, we wish you all a blessed Holy Day season and a purpose-filled new year. I'm Suzanne Giesman, and if you've ever wondered about life after death or if it's possible to connect with a higher consciousness, I invite you to join me for my podcast, Messages of Hope. It's my mission to share with you that our loved ones who have passed are always with us and we are so very loved. I want to teach you how to live a consciously connected and divinely guided life. Listen here on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network.